All right. Welcome, LPs. Today, we are doing an episode with the co-founder and CEO of a super interesting company, and one that's particularly timely given our uh, recent main show episode on TikTok, Stephen Galanis of Cameo. So Cameo is an online marketplace where fans can book personalized video shoutouts from their favorite celebrities. As I'm sure Stephen will talk about, it is the digital selfie. They have over 10,000 famous actors, athletes, and influencers on the platform from Flavor Flav to Denise Richards to Brett Favre, who has been very, very active on the platform. The big uh, three. Yeah. <laughs> who you can book right now to say basically anything you want on video for a price. Unless you think that this is just silly or frivolous or ridiculous, guess what? It turns out there are a lot of people out there who want this service and are willing to pay for it. Cameo is doing millions of dollars in bookings and earlier this year raised $50 million from Kleiner Perkins, Lightspeed, Spark, Bedrock, and others. Welcome, Stephen, to the show. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. Well, it's, it's funny. The first time I heard about this, my first instinct was... Will anybody really do this on the talent side? And then my second instinct was, wait, how has this never been done before? It's like it, it took me all of ten minutes to flip from like, no, come on, to like, it is completely obvious. How is this not in the world already? I'm so curious to hear about your strategy of like scrapping it together and like laddering up from the whoever you started with talent wise to get the pretty amazing people who are on the platform today. From our side, I would actually totally agree with your assessment. When we started the business, I had pretty absolute conviction that there would be insatiable customer demand for this. From the first time I saw uh, a Cameo or what we today call a Cameo, I really believed that this would be something that basically any fan would want. The question was always, could we build repeatable supply? So in our marketplace, uh, we, just like any other marketplace, the consummate chicken or the egg problem, we believed we needed to attack the supply side first for two reasons. Number one, uh, the thing that's cool about our supply versus the supply at Uber or Airbnb or Grubhub or DoorDash or any of those, our supply are famous and literally can drive their own demand, right? So in our marketplace, supply begets demand because their fans, who you know, the hundreds of thousands or millions of people that follow them on Instagram, on Twitter, on TikTok, on YouTube, are the most likely people in the world to book them. So we fundamentally believe that if we could build repeatable supply, uh, we would have an opportunity to match demand pretty endlessly. And to answer your second question, why had nobody done this before? I think that technologically there were a couple like things that needed to exist before Cameo could exist. Snapchat uh, was incredibly important probably to our development because prior to Snapchat, I don't think many people on earth had ever taken a, a selfie video before. I think Snapchat pioneered that format. Again, Instagram story probably took that to the next level. But I think you needed the, the video selfie to become a thing before Cameo could become a thing. As we kind of like got into the business, when we started raising like our friends and family round in our uh, in our angel round, we actually found out that there were companies that did try to do this. The problem was they actually started with A plus list talent, and the entry level price point was really high. There was one I remember that had like Dwayne Wade and maybe even LeBron on it, but the price for them were 
$2,500. Yeah, especially together, I hear they're pretty expensive to do anything. So Yeah, we. I mean, we <laughs> sold our first cameo, I believe, was $1. We were selling $1 and $3 cameos. And we always believed that if we could build liquidity in the marketplace and give people a great experience for $1 or $3, in the future, we could always go up market. But we believe that if you start too high, there's only so many people in the world that could actually do it. So for us, it was all about how do we... How do we price these in a way that makes them affordable to anyone, but also like still special, accessible, and rare? Give us a sense of a couple of like uh, example price points today for people who are like, okay, so you know, you mentioned some of those celebrities earlier, David, Stephen. Off the top of your head, you know, two, three people that are on there today, what they cost? Yeah, I mean, probably the most famous example, right? Snoop Dogg is four twenty. Right. I don't know. (laughs) You know, like, I don't know how much Snoop Dogg like should be. But like that to me is like the perfect price for Snoop Dogg. Right. (laughs) Um, You know, other guys, uh, you know, I'm a big uh, I'm a big sports guy. So like for me, you know, that was always a great thing. Lance Briggs, who was like the, you know, along with Brian Urlacher, kind of like the anchor of the Bears defense back in the day. He's fifty five dollars. Right. Like I look at all the time on Cameo and I can't believe you know, the, the great value for a lot of these people. I think the Denise Richards is of the world, Charlie Sheens, most of them found their price point somewhere in the $250 range. So it's, it's again, for a lot of these people, you know, that they'd seem so inaccessible prior to Cameo. Like it's actually, it's a great price point. And we always talk to our talent and tell them, don't worry about what you think your time is worth. Worry about what your fans can afford. As we were researching to, to talk to you today, I think there's actually a really, really important underlying trend behind all this, which is not just technology and not just a marketplace and payments. And that's that, uh, and this speaks to the timing of why this worked for you and didn't work before, is that somewhere in the last, call it three years, the relationship that celebrities and uh, influencers had with their audience has completely changed. I've heard you talk about this on, on other shows, but I, I want to dive into this as we go. But before we get to double click on that theme, tell us about what you did before Cameo, because you <laughs> you had a uh, a decently non traditional background uh, for starting a company, you know, and and also get into you guys are based in Chicago and you're building a big you know social app company, video company in Chicago. Like, tell us how all this came to be. I think my entrepreneurial journey started in college at Duke. And while at Duke, um, I happened to be like the first grade of students that had my entire college career on Facebook, right? And this was still when the network was closed. Um, I remember like... You were 2009 at Duke? I, I was 2010, but yeah. I remember uh, when I was in high school, you used to have need to have a .edu uh, address to even get on the network. So I remember like getting into University of Illinois and having, you know, putting the deposit down just to get the email so you could join Facebook. That was like a huge thing. But why is that important? Well, while at Duke... I, along with this guy, Zach Moritas, who's now the CEO of a really successful company called Teamworks out on the East Coast, Zach and I started this Facebook group called Spartan Entertainment. And by the end of our four years of college, we had over 17,000 students in this Facebook group. And we... So not just Duke students. 
it started with Duke, but then again, and you know, North Carolina, that triangle is really close. So NC State, Elon, North Carolina. And it started with us throwing Wednesday night beer pong at the biggest bar on campus, Shooters. Oh, and, I've been to Shooters. <laughs> so we, place is awesome. So I, if you're ever there on Wednesday night, my biggest claim to fame of my college years, I started Wednesday night beer pong. I was the founder of that. That ended up building network effect business for the first time. And when we had that group, we started all different types of businesses. We had a college storage business. So at the end of the semester, only 8% of Duke students are, are in state. So they all need to pack their shit up and, and get it to the next place. We started that. We had a hot dog stand. We had a t-shirt stand. We had a DJ booking business. We had event booking business. So I really learned that if you could build a network effect business, and you could get critical mass for whatever demographic you're looking for. There are always other things that you could do to sell with that. So we built a really, really lucrative business there. After Duke, I was an options trader and I traded at the, on the floor of the Chicago Board of Trade for four or five years. While doing that, uh, my uncle's a movie producer and he was producing – in 2012, you had a bunch of big movies come out. It was like Lone Survivor and Rambo and Conan. Like they were just kind of like back to back to back. And all the guys in the pit were like, why are you here with us? And why aren't you in LA being a movie producer? So I did what any like scrappy entrepreneur does. I started raising 25 grand a pop from all the guys that were around me. And we started investing in movies and television shows. Uh, while doing that, I met uh, Wait, Martin. how does one go about doing that? Like, how do you, I know how you write a $25,000 check into like a C-Corp startup. How do you decide I'm going to invest in this movie? Well, the, the thing that was cool was my uncle always knew that I had interest in doing it. So he called me up one day and was like, hey, Steven, if you can, I'm producing this show called Safe. It's going to be Baywatch for, you know, in 2013. So imagine Baywatch, it's Greg Bonin, who is the original founder of Baywatch with drones and GoPros. Like, what would Baywatch look like in 2013? 2013. All the guys liked the idea, so I was able to go through them. He gave me a small allocation. He's like, if you can raise uh, half a million dollars, I think it was, or 25 or 250K, whatever it was, you know, I'll make you, I'll give you a producer credit on the show. Well, within 24 hours, I was oversubscribed and we ended up taking down either half a million or a million dollar allocation. I don't remember what it was. And, uh, and you know, this, fil- this show was getting filmed at Cape Town, South Africa. So I got to go to, I took my family down there. We got to go on set. Dolph Lundgren was like kind of the David Hasselhoff. So oh I got God. to meet Dolph and all that. You know, so it was a very, very cool uh, situation. But anyways, I met Martin, my co-founder there. So that was like, that was kind of like one little important part of the story. While trading, me and Martin kept doing more of these deals. And because my uncle was a producer, we kind of had insider access to, to deals that nobody else could get into. Uh, there was a lot of demand in Chicago to invest in movies because they don't see that type of deal flow. So that was really interesting. That's where I kind of learned that you know, while Chicago doesn't necessarily have these celebrities walking around, there's a lot of FOMO because in New York or LA, they probably have it. And I think fast forward, that's why we were able to do so well raising early angel and series A money here versus going to the West Coast. And you guys have a huge LA presence. You think like Cameo should be in LA, you're in Chicago. But the I'm just thinking and listening to you, the demand side of the platform, like the people, the audience, the people that are buying and requesting Cameos, they live in Chicago, right? Like they don't live we're, in LA. We're close to our customers here, no question. Um, and, and look, my two co-founders are in LA. 
So they've always been that. I was the crazy one in Chicago by myself. So just to continue the story, I got a really cool opportunity when a college buddy of mine reached out and said, hey, LinkedIn is hiring for this role that they're, they're basically selling this product sales navigator into finance. And Chicago is going to be the next office. I got to be the first hire in the Chicago office to sell this product to, uh, you know, into finance. That gave me my first. So you went from being an options trader to then going into sales. Like this was a a sales job for LinkedIn. For sure. Yeah. I'd never sold anything before. I probably had some natural sales skills, but (laughs) LinkedIn, but LinkedIn was (laughs) LinkedIn, like gave me this opportunity to kind of see what tech was all about, which was really fascinating. One of the downsides of trading. And I know I remember as a 21 year old when I took my first trading job walking out of the floor of the SIBO for the first time. And it was like a dinosaur graveyard because there used to be 40,000 people there and all these different pits. And really, it was down to two pits, the SPX, which I traded in, and the Spider Pit. Those were the only two pit in the VIX, were the only two pits in the world that were three pits that were still going. And as a 21-year-old, I literally remember having the thought saying, my dream is to be the last great options trader in Chicago, right? Like, like that's such a weird thing. Like no, no one in tech's like, I want to be the last great entrepreneur, right? So I think that like the writing on the wall was probably there for the first day I walked in. And the more time I spent around the guys, it was so clear that everybody had a fixed mindset. It was all about, man, you missed the good times. You should have been here in, in the 90s. You should have been here in 01. You should have been here, you know, 9-11, the flash crash, all this stuff. And everyone was talking about how everything great that ever happened in trading was like back in the day. And then when I got to LinkedIn, it was like, it was amazing because it was always, everybody's talking about like, look what we could become. Here's our mission to, you know, to connect the world's professionals and make them more successful, right? Like, and that was like such a huge, big, ambitious thing. So for me, it was really, really exciting to get to LinkedIn. And I remember my Were first... Were you there like around the IPO? I got there two years before the Microsoft transaction. So I left right... Basically, I left like a couple of weeks after the Microsoft uh, purchase. But my very, very first day at LinkedIn, Mike Gamson, who is now the CEO of a company called Relativity, but at the time was the SVP of sales at LinkedIn... Uh, gets in stage in Chicago and all the new hires worldwide are on Zoom, like all, all across the world. And the first thing he says, 9.30 a.m. on my first day, welcome to LinkedIn. Two years from today, none of you will have the job we just hired you for. We know that. We support that. We literally have the profile data to prove it. Your job in the next two years is to become, figure out what your dream job is. Our job as a company is to make sure that you get the skills you need to get your next job. And all we ask is when you're ready to leave for another job internally or externally, you recruit someone better than yourself to take your place. That was so different. (laughs) That was mind blowing to me. I never knew anything about culture. I didn't know about, I didn't know about diversity. I literally like it was not when I was trading there. I didn't work with any women for the first five years of my career. And suddenly you have people like Mike Gamson and Jeff Wiener and, you know, the, the leaders at LinkedIn talking how important it was to balance out the, the, you know, the gender bias and the upper levels of management at LinkedIn. And I just wasn't ever exposed to that. And, and culture and values, like these were not things that we talked about in trading. So it was so amazing to have that experience, uh, at the time that I did because really LinkedIn was the formative time in my career. It's kind of crazy all the things that come together to start Cameo. So you have like literally options trading, like market making 
experience. You've got all your entrepreneurial DNA from Duke and then hustling and getting into these movies. Then you've got the Chicago connection. Of well, the, the, best, the, be- the best part are my co-founders. We didn't even talk oh, about right. that. So that's what I was going to so, flip to. Like, tell us about Martin and Devin. <laughs> so, so Martin, who I first met doing the, the movie production stuff, uh, after a few years, when, when I went to LinkedIn, the deal flow kind of dried up. And he had this crazy idea that if he became an NFL agent, he could maybe find the next rock. By, by trying to find, you know, big personality guys that he could turn into action stars and put them in my uncle's movies. So the first guy he signed was this guy, Cassius Marsh, who played for the Seattle Seahawks. I was going to say, that's how Cassius got So, so that's, his that's how we script. met there. So oh. for Martin, I had the guy that was an NFL agent and movie producer. So he just knew talent. Uh, Devin, my other co-founder, who I went to Duke with, Devin and his best friend, Cody, Devin was an engineer at Microsoft or PM at Microsoft. Cody was an engineer at Apple. Uh, after two years of working in, in Silicon Valley and Seattle, respectively, they both like hated their lives, hated their jobs, quit, and then spent a year traveling the world and blew up on this thing called Vine. Yeah. Oh, Devin, we talked a lot about Vine on our TikTok episode. Yeah. Devin ended up with like 960 million loops. His best friend, Cody, who's now Cody Co., yeah, one of the biggest say, YouTubers This, is, this is Cody Co. This is not just any like Cody. Yeah. So Cody had 3.6 billion loops on Vine. So literally my CTO and my co-founder was a Vine star, right? And, and actually is someone that was famous enough to be on Cameo that if I had built it, I would have like wanted him to be on. So And he's he, your CTO. And he's our CTO. So like who better in the world to build this product than, than this team, right? You have, you have the entrepreneurial marketplace DNA, you have the talent person, and you have this Vine star. And if Devin was as famous as Cody Co., then he probably would have been too famous to not care. Yeah, he wouldn't, he wouldn't have been like, I'm done writing code. Like. If, if, if Martin was Ari Emanuel, right, then he would have been too busy, you know, repping the rock and repping the number one pick of the draft that he wouldn't have had time to build Cameo. Right. And Timing it, is everything. Like everyone is at the right place in their rise. And if you had joined, you know, the CBOE a couple of years ahead of time, you would have been too rich to care. Like, so, you would have just been financing these movies <laughs> yourself. So the thing that was fun was I think we really had, they always talk about product market fit, but I really think that this team had like the correct founder market fit. And when, you know, there's probably 27 other teams in the world now copycatting and trying to do what we're doing. And I've met all of them, but the truth is they're always like missing something, right? They might have the product, but they don't have the talent DNA. They might have the talent DNA, but they're outsourcing the product and and they're never going to be able to compete. One of my uh, favorite investors uh, who I met at Duke earlier this year talks about for founding teams and consumer, the most important thing you need in a founding team is that you have each three of these people, the hacker, the hustler, and the hipster. And if you're missing any of them, like it's not going to work. And sometimes that can be with one person, sometimes two have one, but it's so important that there's not overlap, critical overlapping skill sets. So from a very early time, you know, I let Martin kind of take the reins on the talent side of the business. I let Devin take the reins on the tech. And then I did everything in the middle and I focused on building a company. Well, listeners, this is the perfect opportunity to introduce a new sponsor here on ACQ2, Quarter. Their new product, Quarter Pro, launched about a year ago and is already adopted by several Fortune 500 companies and some of the world's largest hedge funds and equity research departments. 
Yeah, this research platform is transforming the way qualitative public market research is conducted. Here's how Quarter Pro works. You can get every piece of first-party information from public companies all in one single place. That's live earnings calls with real-time transcripts, company filings, slide decks, and more. Quarter Pro has built a world-class user interface for this. Yep. Let's say you're an investor or a podcaster, and you've got the use case where you need to look up a company such as Novo Nordisk, Hermes, or Visa. You can open their platform and search Guidance or Market Outlook. Quarter Pro then immediately identifies all instances where a company has historically mentioned and discussed these topics in all of their IR-related communications. Or here's another pretty crazy thing they've done that's difficult to get anywhere else. You can actually search through literally every individual slide in Quarter's database, covering 9,000 public companies and millions of slides for any keyword mention based on Quarter's AI capabilities. This truly makes it easier than ever to conduct qualitative analysis of entire industry value chains and specific companies. So whether you're an equity research analyst, an asset manager, or an investor relations professional, this platform will help you increase your productivity through their live call, transcript components, AI-powered summaries, and a feature allowing you to visualize the entire timeline and changes of specific slides throughout Quarter's. Quarter also offers their database as an API solution. This enables other companies such as trading and research platforms, as well as AI and LLM companies to build custom solutions and integrate this database into their offerings or add functionality on top of the data. Yep. To find out why leading companies globally are choosing Quarter Pro in their day-to-day work and to experience the platform firsthand, request a personal demo by visiting quarter.com slash acquired. That's Q-U-A-R-T-R no e q u a r t r dot com slash acquired or click the link in the show notes to get the personal demo from the quarter team our thanks to quarter were you able to take advantage of the distribution from cody or from devon when you were getting off the ground like is there something that happened in getting users on the platform or getting the word out where you're like oh yeah if not for that like we we would not have found well the, and you started actually mass. with Cassius, right? Not with yeah. not with Devin or yeah, Cody. Yeah. Well, let's talk about that. So, uh, you know, it's funny because people look today at Cameo as this like, oh, wow, this thing went so fast. But it took us six months from when we had the idea to even sell our first one. And when we launched, uh, we, we always had high conviction that because our supply had followers and was famous, that if they promoted on Twitter, on Instagram, they could drive the initial users to our platform. And that's how we could get the marketplace going. Um, so I remember the day that we launched and, uh, and it was a Tuesday night. It was sometime in March of 2017. I was down in Scottsdale, Arizona, trying to get the second talent on, uh, who is a guy named Jason Kipnis that played for the, in- oh, yeah. plays for the Indians who, uh, went to my rival high school. So I've known Kip for a long time. No way. So we were down there at dinner with Kip, like trying to convince him to get on. Devin and Martin were in. What's, what's, your pitch, what's your pitch to Kip at this point in time? You're like, hey man, I got this thing. Is this it like, like you're hey, gonna make more money, or you're yeah, gonna have well, fun, or like? Like he's an all star. He's on top of the yeah. world at the time. So like, I was just hoping like you know Kip would just put his name on it and hey guys, we have an now there's an all star. Just gave some credibility. Um, so I remember being down there and 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 then Martin, Devin, and Cassius Marsh were in Devin's apartment in Venice Beach. And it was about 10 o'clock at night. And we had this like original video that was the one that kind of gave us the idea. And Cassius put a tweet out and he said, I, for $20, I'll make a video like this 
for anyone you want. And it was kind of a sample, what we now call Cameo. We were called powermove.io at that point. Cassius sent the tweet out. That that was the problem, <laughs> clearly. It was the name. Uh, Cassius sent a tweet out. And I remember like the guys have the Google Analytics going. And there's one dot in Scottsdale and one dot in Venice Beach. And we sent the tweet out. And we expected there to be this huge rush of people coming to the site. And literally, it was crickets. Nobody came. And in fact, not only did nobody come, but people started talking shit to Cash and saying, you know, how cheap of you to, to be selling out for 20 bucks? How much is this company paying you? He had just given us 25 grand to help build it. So now he's mad at us. And like, it's a disaster. Martin's only NFL client is now out money and he's, you know, like so mad at him. This and is he your, your Jerry Maguire moment right here. And he, and he storms out and Martin's pissed at me at Devin. What did you guys do? And then I'm just like, maybe Google isn't working. So I remember I signed off. Uh, the site and the dot in Scottsdale went away and then I signed back on and it's like, nope, nope, nope Google. It's, not, it's not Google. <laughs> it's not Google. Google's not working. So Cash and uh, Martin like storm off and me and Devin are just on speakerphone just trying to riff and we're like, well, maybe Tuesday night at 10 Pacific time wasn't the best time to do it. Maybe we should have you know, picked a different time, like all this stuff. And then all of a sudden, as we're talking, this dot pops up in Renton, Washington, which is where the Seahawks facility is. Yeah. So now we're like, okay, cool. Someone's on the site. And the day Cameo launched, you can imagine like today there's like 20,000 people. There's all these videos. There's reactions. There's just stuff to do. There was nothing to do on the site. The MVP was a Google form. What's your name? You know, who do you want? And, and like, or what do you want them to say? And put your credit card in. And this dot's just staying there for... Like it's, it was probably four minutes, but it seemed it's like, like four what hours. What are you doing on the site? And, and I remember like just being like at the edge of the table, looking like, well, what is what's going to happen? What's going to happen? <laughs> and then all of a sudden, the dot just goes away, and we were so re- dejected, and we're like, shit! Like the one person that came tonight, like didn't even want it. Like maybe I shouldn't have left LinkedIn yet until I'd sold some. So it was just so clear that like we we screwed this up. And then my phone vibrates, and I get a DM from this guy. And he's like, hey, Cassius Marsh is my daughter's favorite person in the world. She's turning 16 on Thursday. I'm trying to book him to say happy birthday to her, but the payment process is not working. So at that, I'm like, don't worry. I, I tell him, just tell me what to say. Don't worry about it. We'll get it done. I texted to Martin and Cash. They don't want anything to do with me at that point. Like they're mad at me. We don't get the video done for like another week. So we missed the girl's birthday. Finally, Martin gets Cassius to do it. And he's like, Hey Reese, it's Cash. Or you're a big. It was like the worst cameo of all time, and and I was so embarrassed. I didn't even want to send it to the dad. But you know, we got it. And I remember the next week I was down in Miami at the Miami Open trying to get someone on. And I remember DMing this dad and just being like, "Well, that's over, you know." But like, I threw it out there to the world, sent it back. Two hours later, I get a DM, and the dad was like, "Oh my god, this was the greatest thing ever." And he sent a video of her watching it and the daughter and the daughter literally started crying. She was so happy. And at that, at that, it was like, I knew the second we had the first one, I'm like, if we can make one person feel like this, as long as we can keep cash happy and have him make more or whoever, like if we can make one person happy like this, we can make, you know, thousands and, and millions and hopefully billions of people, you know, happy like that. When this is so okay, so this is where I want to talk about the the changing relationship. Like, if I'm cash or anybody, you know, the money's great, right? But like, I don't think it's necessarily about the twenty bucks or four hundred and twenty bucks. It's about 
you know, this person loves me and my persona so much. And in 10 seconds of my time, I can make them so happy they're crying. And then they, I now have like this super deep relationship and like I've cemented them as my fan for life. And then they're going to talk about this and they're going to amplify me. And it just drives my own personal flywheel here, right? That was absolutely the pitch that we were trying to sell. But until we had a reaction video, we couldn't really say it. So when I was getting cash on, we were purely talking about the economics. And I think at the time, Cassius was making a million dollars a year. And I told Cash, if you take a million dollars, divide by 2,000 hours in a work week, divided by 60, you make $6.25 a minute getting your brain beaten in in the NFL. So if you are charging 20 bucks a video, you do two of them or three of them per minute, you can make like, like literally six or seven X what you're making the NFL per minute by doing these at $20. So like that Jedi mind trick math like built liquidity and it got people to start at a very low price point. The and idea then, is he should have taken all of his NFL earnings and just put it into buying equity in Cameo. <laughs> like, like, <laughs> well, his, you know, his 25 grand check, I think will uh, you know, hopefully, well. hopefully do pretty well for him. Uh, but I got to say like that started it. So we started with these pro athletes and we started with like all these, you know, guys, like the first people we added were not people you launch a, a site with. And there's, you know, thousands of people on earth that could have probably built a better opening roster to us. And we started just with pro athletes because uh, we, we really felt we need to be verticalized. We need to be focused to start off. We always believed that more people could be on this, but we thought the problem was uniquely uh, that, you know, the only the top athletes are able to get endorsement deals. And there was a documentary called Broke that came out from ESPN that 30 for 30, many of you guys might have seen. And in that there was a crazy stat that said like 80% of NFL players go broke five years after playing their last game. The average year career is only two and a half years. So these people are so famous, but then, you know, they're not really prepared to do anything after football. And it's really, really tough for them because they've got a standard of living. I, Martin went to a, a thing and saw A-Rod speak, I remember in 2016. And A-Rod was speaking at the University of Miami and he said that, for the average pro athlete, they make 92% of all their lifetime earnings before the age of 28, which is crazy, right? Like just, to, I don't know, I'm 32 now. To think that like for the rest of, you know, the next 50 years of my life, I'm going to make less money than I made, you know, like way less. I'm going to make a tenth of what I made, you know, from from the, the years before that. Pretty crazy. And so we really felt like that's where the, the pain point was. But then I remember Devin, like we had our our daily video chat. Devin's like, I think Cody and people like Cody might do good on this. And Cody, for those of you that don't know, Cody Co, his his roommate who had like 3 million YouTube followers, we're like, okay, cool. Sure. Yeah. Let's try Cody and see what happens. And, and Devin and Cody, uh, I remember were driving from Calgary where Cody's from to, to Cody's uh, cabin in, in Montana. So they were doing this long drive and they decided to put Devin on for $1 and Cody on for $3. And Devin and Cody were talking about how they have so many DMs on Instagram from all these people that have kind of asked for this. Hey, my little sister loves you. Can you wish her happy birthday? So what they started doing, they said, hey, I'm on this new thing. For $1, I'll wish you happy birthday. For $3, I'll make fun of your friend. And, and they kept opening their DMs and doing it. And then the people would be like, that's the best dollar I've ever spent. That's the best $3 I've ever spent. And then so Cody- So sort of taking this existing behavior and productizing it. Exactly. So then we started thinking, okay, Cameo is a way to monetize your DMs. That was a, the, the second pitch that we would talk about early. And, and then I remember Cody put 
uh, a cameo that we had booked uh, for him uh, from Thaddeus Lewis, who was like a, my one of my college roommates, who was like a career backup NFL player. And he was basically Devin's a blonde and Cody's a brunette. And they made this YouTube video where Devin and Cody were going to like switch hair colors. And Cody was like scared to go blonde. And we booked Thad Lewis to like pump Cody up to be like a blonde. And like he played it in his video. And then at the end he was like, and if you want something like this, I'm on it. Come to this site. And that's the first time the site really blew up. Did that have the same problem that you had originally with cash where people thought, hey, like you're selling out. Like, I can't believe you're asking me for money for this. This seems stupid. Like, why would this seems petty? Has that gone away? I think for the at least for Cody, right, the influencer culture is literally about like selling. It's not I wouldn't say it's literally about selling out, but like fans of influencers just are always buying whatever they're selling. Right, like their new merch line, their you know their phone cases, their meet and greets, their all that stuff. And Patreon, by this point, had already kind of been established. So I think for digital creators, fans were already like used to kind of supporting their people because the economics of YouTube are kind of screwed up. The top three percent of creators make ninety seven percent of all the money on the platform. And then even uh, I, the last study I saw about this, and I, you know this is third party data, but the last I've seen. Even among the people that are making money, the median earnings on YouTube of even the, that top three percent is like sixteen, seventeen thousand dollars. So yeah, it's they're such making a power loss. So they're making all of their money basically by doing brand deals and by doing other stuff, um, and by selling merch, by doing meet and greets. So I think fans are just used to supporting them, even for athletes, right? Like they sign autographs and they do showings. People pay. This isn't free, right? Like. Like, we're not taking a new behavior. We're just enabling something that was impossible and making it possible. Were you guys influenced by what was going on in China as you were starting all this and building all this? Or, or is it kind of like parallel innovations? And I'm referring to, you know, we talked about on the TikTok episode what was going on in Kwai Show and, and, and then ultimately, you know, uh, TikTok and Douyin and all these live streaming platforms in China where direct monetization is the, the business model. We had no idea probably what was going on in China. We weren't influenced by it. Uh, to be honest, like we don't even really pay attention to what's going on there that much uh, outside of, you know, when we've had investor meetings, Series B, Series A, you know, some firms that, you know, have deep expertise of what's going on over there. We'll kind of talk about the parallels, but we're focused on what's in front of us. Like we see this, we know in this market in entertainment and celebrities, if you in the U.S., you're going to win the whole world. So at the end of the day, like we're not very distracted by like other stuff that's there. Um, I think, you know, now that we've made some hires like Stefan, our CMO and head of international, uh, ran global marketing at TikTok. Uh, so he's literally like knows exactly. Well, it's so know, funny. That's the same approach that musically before you know, TikTok yeah. took was, hey, if we win U.S., we're going to win the world because U.S. drives the culture. Totally. And we saw that because, you know, Stefan was employee 16 and musically, right? So he knew what that took. He watched that kind of evolve. He knew that if you won, uh, you know, if you won the African American culture and, and, and the rappers were on it and that became a cool thing, like you were going to win the US. You know, we're following a, a very similar playbook. On ours, we, there were two like big trends that I think we recognized way before basically anybody else, at least in like the real talent business. Because of platforms like YouTube and TikTok and Vine before it and Instagram, 
There are more famous people being manufactured every single day. And people today are more famous than they've ever been. So I remember uh, even thinking like Zion Williamson, when he came into Duke, he had 2.1 million followers on Instagram before he played his first game. One of my best friends started for the New York Knicks and was a captain there. And won a four-year starter at Duke, won national championship, played on the Knicks as a starter, and, and he had 47,000 followers. So people are more famous now than they have ever been. There's more famous people being manufactured every day. And the market, uh, especially like the, the big agencies, they really underpriced, I believe, like the power of these influencers because like the whole culture was changing. Uh, five years ago, Will Smith would never, is the highest paid actor in Hollywood, would have never been on TikTok or never been on YouTube. And now he's on it because the, the demands of fans are changing. They need accessibility. You can't be in your ivory tower or behind the red velvet rope as talent anymore. And that this is why the people with the that are, are are most in demand on our platform, it wasn't Justin Bieber or Beyonce or Kanye or Jay-Z. David Dobrik, who's a vlogger that you guys may or may not know, he was the one like we knew about two years ago that was getting requested more than anyone we didn't have. Right. And and people would talk to me about LeBron and, and shit. And like we had the data who people are searching for. Steph Curry was the most searched for athlete in the world. And he was only number 30. And if I showed you the list of the people ahead of him, I bet you you couldn't even tell me who two thirds of them were. So that was very eye opening for us. Huh, it's kind of the same way that that Amazon uh, purportedly does private label products. They have the data on who on what people are searching for. So they know what products to make. Similarly, you're like, yeah, I don't have to buy into this like you know, one person making a hot list and, and choosing what the price is to come speak at your event. Like we, we have the data. <laughs> and, and you know, the thing is like even traditional Hollywood in many cases still don't get it. I had a, I had an A plus list actors representative reach out to me about three months ago after our series beat. And he's like, you know, my client loves Cameo. He's obsessed with that. He'd like to become the official spokesperson and all he's going to need is 20% of the common. <laughs> and, You're like, hey, and, and we don't need like, a spokesperson. We are the spokesperson. Yeah, yeah. Go so so he, he offered me 20. He's like, for 20% of the common, you know, he will be the spokesperson. And like, I'm looking at what Cameo is worth right now. I'm like, dude. There's no fucking way. Not only that, but like <laughs> he wasn't even willing to come on the platform. I'm like, oh, I'm like, we've never given anybody equity. We've never paid anyone to be on it. Uh, we, you know, we've never paid anybody to promote. So like, we're not going to like change it for you. Like we've gotten 20,000 other people to, to agree to this. And like, <laughs> yes, it would be, you would kill it on here. But if you're not even going to be on, like, why are we even talking right now? Yeah. It's oh, really man. strange. That's, that just so illustrates. The whole world not getting it. But it's not strange because ultimately, if you look at what's working in consumer, especially in, in the fashion space, in the even in, in apparel, like it's so hard to build a D2C brand today that like pairing up with, you know, a Kylie, right, can like literally make something become a billion dollar business overnight. So I think that that the direct to consumer celebrity based model, which Nicole Quinn at Lightspeed, who's who led our Series A and is on my board, is probably like the best in the world at doing right now. You know, between like Sophia and Girl Boss and House Labs and you know Lady Gaga's new thing and uh, Honest Company, like it's so hard to build an organic following now as a brand by pairing with the celebrity. It's so important. Our big thing at Cameo is that 
you know, basically we are a marketplace of like 20,000 different direct to consumer brands, but they're all the talent are just selling themselves. I think this is a, a really important thing. Yeah, right now they're just selling themselves, but like I'm pretty sure D2C and influencer are skating toward the same things because these influencers are brands in the same way that these single product companies are brands. And they're both trying to build like a new sort of like a challenger brand that displaces the incumbent. And whether they're selling themselves and their time and their availability or whether they're selling you, you know, a consumer package good, like we're going to start to see these things really merge. And like we've already seen with, with Glossier or not Glossier. Well, Glossier too, to some Glossier, extent. Yeah, it was but a with, um, you know, goop like the 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 things that have sort of the um, hero founder behind them, whether they were famous for the company or famous before the company, like that like is. I'm sure an, Emily an Weiss would kill it on cam- on cameo if she were on. Well, and and now we're getting more CEOs, right? So Alexis Sohanian's on uh, uh, Crawley from Foursquare. Like we're like founders and, and CEOs are getting on because look, if I'm a uh, a C level founder or I'm just getting started and hearing from like. Alexis, or we have a lot of VCs on, you know, you can go book any of our VC investors. Like I make them join Cameo, right? They should be like the lowest price. right? And and they're like five bucks for charity, but it's just, (laughs) but, but, you know, it's like, Hey, here's my idea. What do you think of it? Right? Like we're going to have all types of different people on there's, you know, the Greek Orthodox Archbishop of Chicago is on Cameo and he does, he does prayers for, you know, for charity. Right. So there's so many different and you you guys are like a collection plate. And you guys mentioned that, uh, you know, cameos for celebrities, there are animals on. There's an Instagram famous pig named Esther that did like 20 grand in bookings a couple months ago. Uh, I think the MIT uh, Robotics Lab or one of the big robotics lab just put a robot on cameo. So we have our first non-living thing on cameo. It's amazing. Wow. That's so amazing. I'm thinking more about the value prop as you pitch, you know, the talent to come on on a percentage basis of bookings that flow through your system, how much is driven by that talent directly and how much is audience that is Cameo's audience that ends up sort of getting directed to them? At this point, it's very, very much uh, Cameo's audience. So people, it's actually funny. There's a, a founder that's working on like a complimentary business, a uh, very early stage, and he's done a really good job getting... Um, like Hall of Fame, like baseball players, like older, like level players. And he's got these huge names and he was just talking about kind of the frustrations of, of getting them on. But these guys don't have a big social following. So he really needs to kind of bring the demand, which was why us getting the YouTubers and the Viners early was so important because that unlocked kind of those people knew how to promote themselves. And, and Cody might tweet and then someone would see like an athlete they liked and that kind of built the network effect. Um, but at this point, the vast majority of bookings are now coming directly from people going to cameo.com and you know browsing and finding. And that's why things like our search algorithm are becoming even more critical uh, because today our algorithms mostly based not by who's on or how famous they are, but it's like, how good are they at making cameos? So we, this algorithm, it goes basically by how many have you done? How quickly do you do them? What's your all-time completion percentage? And what's your average, what's the average turnaround time? And for, and then your customer rating. So it's a function of that. So we basically try to like, people are, our, our customers are coming to cameo.com you're and like, we're trying your to search rig algorithm this. algorithm is like Airbnb's search algorithm or Rover's search algorithm. Yeah. Like, and, yeah. and you know, it's, there, there's good and bad to that, right? The bad is 
that people that are new to the site, unless they kind of pop right away, they're going to get buried by 20,000 others. But I also think our early adopters should get rewarded, right? So, so for us, um, you know, we're constantly tweaking the algorithm and, and now like we'll make a tweak and then we'll hear about it the next day because nobody ever comes to us and says, Oh man, my, this is so great. Your new algorithm made me more money. But you know, if, if people's bookings come down a little bit because we make a tweak, Oh, you just killed my business. But it's like, you don't have a business unless we're here. It's so interesting. I mean, you bootstrapped it using the, uh, the audience of your early influencers and you had a strategy by using influencers rather than traditional celebrities. So like people that had the, the following that they could direct to sort of like build your platform. But now it's a totally different value prop. And you can say, no, 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 this is our audience we're bringing, not, not you bring your own audience. And I think that's, that's really important. And I think something that is, uh, often missed in a lot of these businesses where it's like, oh, well, they'll join because of the promise of future audience. Like that, that tends not to work. Well, look, I mean, when we got started, you know, and we were doing, you know, today, like yesterday was our biggest day ever. We did 4,000 cameos yesterday, right? Like it took us, it took us a year to get to, you know, basically a thousand. So back then I remember in 2016, 2017 pitching people like this is Instagram but like this is Instagram in 2011 or 2012. Like you're gonna get four likes per picture right now, and then in a year you're gonna get like 40 likes per picture, and then you know two years you're gonna get 4,000, and then and in 10 years likes won't matter at all, and we'll hide them. <laughs> but, but like, but this was the same thing. I said you just have to believe that like this is gonna be a thing, and I think now post the the two rounds of funding that we had last year that um, or this past year that that really kind of put Cameo in the map. A lot of talent were really scared to join early because they weren't sure if the platform would last. And I think like the legacy of the Lightspeed and Kleiner round, the A and B for us, was that finally talent could see, okay, this is here to stay. People are making real money on this thing. You know, it's backed by some of the best investors on earth. And, you know, it's worth me, you know, putting my name on it and, and really trying to build a following up on here. How much value is there to the platform of all of the corpus of past content that's been created on on cameo uh for, i mean obviously because it's requests it's like it's the new stuff it's like i'm paying for the request but does i would imagine for especially you take an individual celebrity on cameo their all of their past videos is what probably generates data for you guys for where to seed them in the algorithm and that sort of stuff the thing that's kind of interesting are is while a cameo for you or your friend is like really interesting, it's not that interesting to watch like like if I don't know, you know, John and I'm watching like Charlie Sheen wish John happy birthday, it's like it's not the most interesting content in but the, the world. The reaction videos. The reactions are super interesting. And look, yeah. some cameos are just objectively interesting. Uh three weeks ago we went viral for Mark McGrath uh breaking up with uh, some some girl's long-distance boyfriend, you know, and, like, this got on Barstool. There were hundreds of millions of views of this video. So so they happen, and, and we think that, like, the great cameos, it doesn't matter who they're for, like, they're out there. So I think there's a content business we will be able to build in the future. I think it'll be great for our talent because there's certain people, like, when people ask me, who should, you, who should I book? Michael Rappaport is the best person on the platform, in my opinion, hands down. Perez Hilton is incredible. Like, you give them anything, they're just going to turn this into, like, a work of art. And 
And like, because I know who those people are, I want to show people how funny their videos are and how big their personalities are. And if people watch that, then they become a fan of them. And, and this is, we talked about the value prop a little bit too. Our value prop at Cameo to Talent is, look, you come on Cameo and you are getting paid to become more popular. Like literally, when you do a video, that fan that got it likes you more than they ever liked it before. Statistically speaking, over 80% of them are going to get shared. So they're going to end up all over the place. Their friends are going to see it. They're going to see how funny you are or how great your content is or how nice you are. And literally, it's, it's this positive brand multiplier effect. That's fascinating. Yeah, get paid to be more popular. Have you thought about how, the best ways to double down on amplifying the best content? Like, should there be like a TikTok channel of best cameos that you could just flip through all day and see? Yeah, like, like, that's why that's why we brought Stefan over, right? Uh, I think Stefan at TikTok did this better than anyone on earth, and that's why when we went to go hire CMO, like that was right away, like. That's like, that's who we need. And we went out and, and, and got them. And, you know, and I think it's super exciting. I think you'll see more content out of us. Uh, we've been messing around with a podcast because at the end of the day, look, we have like 20,000 of the most interesting people on earth uh, on this thing. Uh, they love doing it. They love being part of the platform. You know, they're all asking what's next and, you know, what are the next things that we're going to build here? There's people that are just like cameo super fans. Yeah, they, they got one one time and, and they like are obsessed with the company and they just want to see more from us. So, you know, I know our social uh, platforms have been, have been growing a ton. We just crossed a hundred thousand followers on, uh, Instagram last week and so many other brands. They'll go and buy, you know, have fake followers and shit. Like I'm very anti ever doing that because the authenticity is so important. So like the people following us, like they really like what we're doing. They didn't just jack it up. So, they could have a blue check mark or anything like that. And, um, and you're seeing this. Our best cameos, we're starting to feature them more. I really like what's going on on our Instagram page right now. Uh, but I think there's massive opportunity, just like TikTok did, to showcase like the very best content and, and to put them on other platforms to drive eyeballs to us. That was, like we said on our episode about TikTok, that was the genius of Musical.ly and TikTok was the best content won and it surfaced the best content. It didn't matter who you were, didn't matter who you were following. You could come on as a brand new onboarded user, not have any idea what was going on and you're automatically seeing the newest, best, freshest stuff without any effort on your part. Like that's huge. Yeah. And you know, we have a lot of work to do before we get there. We're also in a different business as well. Um, you know, like one of the really interesting things about Cameo is if we actually decide to become a social network, you know, we have a lot of the foundational pieces for that, but right now this is an e-commerce marketplace, like very much with social components to it, right? And the thing that's kind of interesting is like, if you really think about what Cameo could become, one, you know, out of many different things that we could come into eventually is like, Cameo could become the first social network not based on an ad revenue model, right? Which is super, super interesting. So for TikTok, for YouTube, for Snap, for Instagram, for Facebook, the whole game is about like getting eyeballs on and having people watching this content and selling ads and data against it. You know, I fundamentally believe that people are getting sick of selling data. Uh, they don't want their data stolen. I think people would rather pay a premium uh, to, to kind of have like bespoke content uh, for them. 
and Cameo is becoming this platform where every single video is being monetized for the fans by the fans, basically. And again, you know, is it interesting enough that every video can be watched? Probably not, but neither is everything on Instagram yeah. or Snapchat. Well, your aligning incentives much better. You know, we talked about this when when we were launching the LP show at Acquired and starting Glow was like, you know, advertising is great. There's nothing wrong with advertising, but it is at best neutral to the content like it doesn't you know add anything right but like direct monetization actually improves the relationship between the fans and the content for sure i think personalization does too right authenticity and personalization are the secret sauce because early when we were getting started um there were a lot of investors that were like you know what you need to do you need to pay these guys a uh, upfront guarantee get them in a room and record every name. Hey, John. Hey, Joe. Hey, Steve. Hey, Luke. Hey, you know, and just like, and then use AI to like construct. But it's like, oh, no. oh, that would ruin the whole thing. But it's, it's the authenticity that makes it special. Yeah, that's cool. Steven, I want to switch gears a little bit and go into um, like general company building conversation. So you've, you've grown super fast. You've had, um, you know, two big funding rounds back to back. You've drawn you know, talent and dollars out of the Valley to Chicago in a way that, you know, we haven't really seen since like Groupon, frankly, like the, the level of sort of excitement around this company. Tons and tons of founders listen to this show and early startup employees and stuff like that. So like reflecting back on, on mistakes you've made, what are some things you wish you would have done differently and how could other people sort of apply that in their journey? Oh, I mean, there's so many mistakes that, uh, <laughs> that, that we've made. Um, but I, you know, I didn't answer a question you answered first and I'd like to address that yeah, before please. I get fully into this. You kind of asked why Chicago, you know, and, and for me, like Chicago was home. Uh, but one thing that was really, really special, um, and I think helped me avoid a lot of mistakes that I certainly would have made if I was in LA or in, in New York or in SF. In Chicago, there was this incubator, it still is called 1871. Uh, it's now ranked the number one incubator in the world. Um, so while Devin and, and Martin were out in LA, like trying to build this, you know, build the tech platform and, and build the talent base, like I was learning how to build a tech company. And through that, I got connected with a lot of the top investors and a lot of the top CEOs in Chicago because they all mentor at this place. They all kind of give back. And, you know, through that, uh, you know, CEOs of other marketplace businesses, like, one of Chicago gets known for, you know, kind of its logistics and B2B tech, but some of the best businesses that are, have been built here have been its consumer marketplace businesses. Yeah, Groupon, so Grubhub. group, group on Grubhub, uh, and then some like emerging ones like raise.com, the, the gift card marketplace and spot hero, uh, the biggest parking marketplace. These guys became like early uh, angel investors or became advisors to me really, really early and never asked for anything. They were just there to help. And, you know, I think when you think of like the competency of Chicago, it's been the center of options trading and commodities trading forever. Marketplace businesses are our core. Like that is what people in this town do. They've been doing for a hundred plus years. So it's not really a surprise that consumer marketplaces would be able to spring up in Chicago really well. And there's a wealth of talent that, you know, has worked at those. Now on the downside, uh, all those guys became my mentors and, and friends and really helped, uh, you know, a lot of them were early funders of the business. The thing that's kind of funny is like, you'd never want to poach talent from your friends. So, so now it's like, I have all these guys at my disposal. 
expose them, but probably, you know, if, if they weren't investors or weren't great mentors to me, I'd probably love to hire like some, you know, some of their top executives out. So that makes it a little bit harder. You know, um, one, one of our themes on this show is that, um, the power of incentives, you know, incentives are the most powerful thing in the world and like aligning them. And, you know, so like those guys, like, yeah, of course, like they want to get back. They want to help. Right. But like, this is the most powerful thing is like you now you're, you're not going to poach their talent. Like <laughs> I remember, I remember when Matt Maloney uh, had his first call to CEO at Grubhub and, and Matt told me, he's like, Steven, I built the biggest marketplace business ever to come out of Chicago. You're building a business that will be bigger than mine. And this is, we weren't even like a seed stage company yet. He's like, because you're selling bits, not atoms. He's like, at Grubhub, nobody cares in in Chicago how many restaurants I have in San Francisco. So I have to build localized supply and demand in every market. Your talent is global and like their fans are all over the world. So if you just focus on the supply side, the demand side will come. And he's like, he's like, I've never seen anything like this. Like it's it's the ultimate hack, you know, to to getting a marketplace off the ground. And in fact, like because they're all famous. Like when I was building Grubhub and I had the first three pizza parlors on, if I went and added 50 the next day, then nobody would get enough business. They would all leave because your talent can market themselves. Like if they come on the platform and they don't promote and they don't get booked, then that's on them. You know, it's not on you. So that was a big lesson early. But one thing he told me was he goes, he goes, Stephen, the Chicago startup scene is littered with people that uh, hired, you know, talent away from Grubhub or Groupon. And the most important thing is that you make sure that you find the person, not that like, he's like, there's so many people that hired their CMO that was a director of marketing, but like, it's one thing to hire people from winning teams, but you need to hire the people that were the reason why those teams won. And that was a really, really interesting uh, lesson that he gave me. You know, you probably saw this at, at LinkedIn a little bit too. You know, when you're at a successful company, the tide is rising, right? And like, that's, you know, and that's great. And like, it's really hard to get hired at those places. Most people there are really talented and great. But like, it's so hard to know from the outside, like who were the people that drove the tide rising up and who were the people that were floating on the And sometimes it has to do with things like product market fit. And my time at LinkedIn, uh, I was selling a product sales navigator into FINRA and SEC regulated firms that couldn't use the product because there was no compliance solution. Because you have to archive everything. If you're a financial advisor, everything has to be archived for like seven years. So like half of our target market literally had no need for this. Or I remember they're like, we think venture capital is a big vertical. And I remember pitching VC firms before I was a founder and saying, look, with this, you could go search who's every San Francisco CEO uh, of a company under 10 people that, you know, graduated from, you know, Stanford and like worked at Google or Facebook. And here's a list of them and you could go hit them. But now, you know, it's like all referral based. It's all. So it's like we were selling something with no product market fit. And, you know, and that's why I was probably one of the worst people that ever worked at LinkedIn. (laughs) And look at you now. That was a great why Chicago. Let's hear some other mistakes you've made along the way and things you would caution other people against. Yeah, uh, the biggest mistake we made, I think, was we overhired at at a point, particularly, look, this company today, we just had, I think, our 23rd person has been here for one year, right? And there's 127 something-ish employees right now. So there was a point where, like, for the first two years of the company, there were like sub 10 people here. And then there were points this year where we were hiring, like it would be a Monday and there'd be like nine people starting and the company expanded by 
35% in a day, right? And this was going on for like six months, probably right after our Series A and then in, through our Series B. And they always talk about like hiring, you know, slow and firing fast. And we got to a point where we were hiring fast and firing slow, you know, which really has a bad compounding effect because I truthfully believe that every time you hire somebody, the culture gets better or it gets worse. Even if you're not personally interacting with those people, maybe the five people on the customer service person that's interacting with, you know, a bad manager or a bad coworker, like their experience is worse. They're going to interact with other people at the company. So even like when we were growing so fast, not that I think our culture ever got bad, but I think like when we were growing so fast, we weren't able to put enough time into the people we were coming up because we believed we were in this land grab. It's like there's 5 million people on earth that can be on this platform. All we need to do is worry about the supply side. So let's hire, you know, every 22, 23, 24 year old in Chicago that has Instagram and can DM people and like, let's hire all of them and let's ramp them. But we didn't get to put enough time, I think, into people that joined, you know, probably from like maybe, let's say employee 40 to like 100. I think it got to a point where I wasn't interviewing everybody anymore. People suddenly got here and, uh, there were diminishing returns on some of the you know, talent people that we brought in because when you add the 157th real housewife, it's not going to have the same impact as you added the fourth, right? Because now you know, the, the marketplace, it's not just who, like how many we're adding. It's like, are we filling the buckets of people that we don't have? So mm-hmm. we were, we were building this strategy yeah, that was just smart. Like, yeah. It was just get everybody on. And then very quickly, you know, within probably three months, our unit economics turned upside down. And and just like if, if you're running a marketing campaign, because like talent acquisition was actually our marketing, right? Because we didn't spend any money on marketing on paid, but we were spending money to, to hire people to acquire supply, which was begetting its own demand. So just like any other marketing campaign that's not working, you know, you ramp it down and you find a new channel to expand into. So for us, I think... That was a really critical moment. We had, you know, we hired all those people that, you know, our headcount was up 5x of where it was in December and revenue was basically like, you know, maybe 30 or 40% higher than it was. It's like, that's not good math. So let's like ramp down the talent team or let's like reallocate some resources. Let's build out a marketing team. You know, now we're, we're a demand constrained business versus a supply constrained business for the first time. Because now we have way more talent on that wants to do more cameos. And now we need to turn on digital marketing, paid, and start actually doing what every other marketplace... Like, our big mistake is we truly thought that our marketplace was special from every other marketplace that existed. And we didn't have to worry about demand. All we had to worry about supply. And that worked for a long time. And then the reality caught up that it's like, Stephen, your business model is not different than everyone that ever worked. Like... And we had to start playing the rules yeah. of marketplace. Airbnb fast. and Uber do a lot of marketing. That doesn't mean they're bad businesses. <laughs> That's just how it works. So yeah, it's and, scale. and then even there, like, um, so that was a that was a big mistake. And I think the other thing that's tough is like executive hires, right? Like, just because somebody did something really well somewhere else, it doesn't mean. And this goes to the Matt Maloney thing. It might not mean that they were the reason why they won. They might have just been part of a, like a winning team. And I think like across the board. At Cameo, every day now we can attract way better talent than we could two years ago or a year ago for sure. Like, so the resumes that I get are insane. And I'm looking at these people and it's like, 
I'm now hiring resumes where before we were probably like really good at hiring people and identifying people that, that might have like a really, you know, high ceiling. And, and now it's sometimes it's like, I think you get bigger people at LinkedIn. I sell this all the time. You'd almost look for people with like a, like a higher floor, right? Like, well, this person did really well here. They can't possibly be bad. And I think that's a really, really tough thing because, you know, when I'm going to make it a marketing hire, I'm not just going to hire somebody off the street. I can go hire the CMO at TikTok, right? And like I can go and try to get that talent. And but balancing that out with the people that uh, have helped us get to that point, I think is is really important. Another thing that we've that we did that some people swear against and others don't is like I started this business with a lot of my friends and family. I had to fire my brother, which was probably the most painful decision I've had to make. And look. Well, this business would not be here if not for like some of my best friends and, and, and family kind of stepping in and, and really helping this get off the ground. But sometimes they can't scale up with the business all the way. And it, that those are really, really hard conversations. I've been super fortunate that uh, my, my co-founders and Arthur, who's our COO, who is a good buddy of ours from college and I worked with at LinkedIn, they've been able to just scale beautifully up as the business has been going. But, you know, the chances of that happening are really rare. And it would suck to put all this time in developing relationships with your best friends, building a company together, and then just getting to a point where, like, somebody can't keep up anymore. That, that's really painful. How do you think about that for yourself, scaling into the needs of the role and making sure that you were the right CEO of a one-person or a three-person business and then you were the right CEO of a 20-person business? How do you know if you're the right CEO of a 127-person business? <sighs> Well, I think it starts with like really identifying what you're world class at and then trying to fire yourself from every job uh, that you're not and hiring somebody better than yourself. So if you were to work at Cameo, you know, on Tuesday we do our all hands and I talk about this every all hands. My goal is to be the worst person that works at Cameo as quickly as possible. I want every single person that is here to be better than me. If I'm the worst person here, then I think that the, the level of talent will be so incredible here that that suddenly like I'm I can just focus on the things that I'm really good at, right? I'm really good at motivating people. I'm really good at, you know, at really articulating our vision, our mission, selling our, selling the dream, getting people excited about what we're doing. And then things that I'm not so great at, it's like I want to fire myself from that ASAP. I want to hire world-class people to go do that. And then really finding executive other executives and other leaders that can balance my weaknesses out so I can just focus on my strengths cuz I personally don't believe that I'm, I'm a huge growth mindset person, but I believe that for most people, their weaknesses are like fundamental deficiencies, but they can be counteracted by not working on your weaknesses, but quadrupling down on your strengths. I think that's so critical. So I think a lot of times people sit there and spend so much effort and time and trying to get better at things that they suck at. We're like, you should just focus all your time on the things that you're great at and try to get, you know, even more world-class at them. The other thing too is I think surrounding yourself with just incredible mentors is so critical, uh, especially for a CEO. So I've been very lucky, you know, to have people like Mike Gamson, who is the very top of my org at LinkedIn, um, ended up introducing me to Jeff Wiener very early on. Jeff invested in the company has become a, a huge mentor to me. Having people like uh, Mark Lawrence from Spot Hero, George Boosie's from Rays, Matt Maloney from Grubhub, you know, constantly being able to talk to these guys and hear like, hey, how did you do this? How did you do that? It's, 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 it's really critical. 
so many of our listeners will want to know, and Dan Lewis from Convoy talked about this too. And so many stories, it's those mentors that help bring you along the way. How did you get those mentors? Like, did you have a strategy? Were you intentional about it? Uh, was it an accident? Was it just that you were doing something interesting? Like, how did that start going? I think it started with Mike Gamson. You know, when I left LinkedIn, he knew about the business. He cold called me three months later. He funded our seat on the spot. And then, you know, I spent a lot of time with him. And I remember when Mike invested, he said, Stephen, with my money, you get my most important resource, my most precious resource, my time. Call me anytime, text me anytime. And he was so generous with his time. And then he started introducing me to people, you know, like Jeff Wiener and, you know, a lot of the others that, that I've mentioned um, really came through, you know, Mike Gamson really changing my life more than anybody. And, you know, I didn't solicit that. And it was so nice as a CEO to find other people that, uh, had been there, done that, and and had had people be helpful to them. And I think this is so Chicago. The tech community here is small, but very tight knit. Everybody knows each other. Everybody wants everybody else to win, you know, because a win for one is really a win for all here. I think being in Chicago really helped that where if I was in LA and you know, everybody, there's so many vested interests in entertainment there that if one person's your mentor, then your their arch rival, you know, is like going to go out of their way to try to kill you. For us, like people are just really interested in what we were doing. And I think excited about, you know, me and, and what I and what I could do and, and what Cameo working in Chicago could mean to this whole ecosystem. I think I think that was big. One last thing I want to ask you or give you the opportunity to talk about before before we wrap up um because i've heard you talk about this before i think is also on this vein really important you guys left your jobs and you went full-time on cameo well before the idea was fully baked you had any signal this was working like this probably also speaks a little bit to why mentors were attracted to you like you guys took a real risk can you talk a little bit about that like yeah it's pretty funny because i have a i have a group telegram chat with like all the guys that I worked with at LinkedIn that were, you know, like sat right within kind of earshot of me. And when Martin and I had the idea for Cameo, I came back like in the office the next day and I was telling everyone and honestly, everyone was super excited about that. And like three of the six of them like now work here as executives, you know, which is really, really cool. And Basically, a group of us, LinkedIn would give Christmas through the first week of the year off to all employees, kind of like winter break. And I remember going to Nicaragua, uh, and there were about eight of us from LinkedIn, and we were sitting in a hot tub on New Year's Day, and Will Hearn, one of the guys I worked with in another office, was like, Stephen, this idea is like too big. And, and up to that point on this trip, everyone was talking about, I'm going to run marketing, I'm going to run sales, I'm going to run product. And we were going to build this like billion dollar company while like getting free lunch and great benefits at LinkedIn, like at our spare time, right? Like none of us were going to quit our job. And I remember Will just asking me, he's like, Steven, this idea is too big. If somebody else builds this company and you're still at your job at LinkedIn and they become a billionaire, could you live with yourself? And nobody had asked me that question before. And it was so clear in my mind that I would not be able to live my, with myself if somebody else took this idea, ran with it, and beat us, that I never went back to LinkedIn. That story I told you about Mike Gamson, his next play speech, and two years from today, none of you will have the job we just hired you for. My last day at LinkedIn was my exact two-year anniversary of my first day. And I remember 
writing my farewell letter, they call it the next play letter to the team. And I explained to them what I was doing. And I told that story and I'm like, look, in this case, Mike Gamson's prophecy came true. I'm going to go pursue this dream on my exact two year anniversary, just like you said. And, you know, that email was actually what started the chain of events that led to him investing and Jeff becoming a mentor. And like, you know, you talk about full circle, but uh, that's why I'll always say LinkedIn was the formative you know, experience in my career. That's so awesome. I guess before we wrap up, one, anything else that you want to leave with listeners with that we didn't talk about? And two, where can our listeners find you on the internet or follow you or any Book of that? Book you on Cameo. Yeah, yeah I'm, I'm bookable on Cameo. Uh, on Twitter, I'm at uh, Mr. MR312, Chicago's uh, area code. Nice. So uh, and a good follow, beer. Me, follow me on Twitter and a good beer. I'm really, really active on LinkedIn. So that's always a, a good place to find me. Cameo.com is where you should you should be booking your cameos. Apple gives us we're subject to the Apple tax on iOS because they call this a digital good. So do not buy cameos in our app until I tell you differently because they're forty two percent more expensive than they are on web. So cameo.com, not cameo app. If you want to buy cameos, that's where you should go. Love it. Steven, thank you so much. Great. Thank you guys for having me. Yeah, have a good one. Thanks for coming on.